hello and welcome back to the Nowhere Office, wherever you are. With me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. This is the podcast which looks at the world of work as it is, as it could be, should be, might be, with some of the leading thinkers and doers of the day. Welcome to the Nowhere Office with me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. And as you can see, we are a little bit more televised than we've been in previous shows, and that's because we want to be. And we're joined by two brilliant guests um, who've never met in their lives, and they've only (laughs) seen each other for about 30 seconds, but that is all good. Um, One of them is Alad McLean-Jones, who is the founder of Assure, and Assure, the elevator pitch tells us, (laughs) is a platform for booking personal and small team off-sites for three to seven days and is very much capitalising on the remote work world or the hybrid working world. And we're joined also by Eleanor Mills, the founder of Noon, which is a platform for midlife women, a phrase Eleanor has coined and copyrighted quite rightly for these (laughs) midlife women, is the queenager. Yep. So Eleanor and Aled, welcome and welcome to our Nowhere office. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great to be here. Yeah. Now, Alid, why is Assure getting involved with this series? What what is the affinity? Uh, yeah. So a little bit about us. So basically, we're a platform that lets people and teams and um, stay in homes that are designed for work. So these are homes that are these perfect creative spaces with uh, workspaces, perfect internet, and the idea is that you can step away from the everyday for a couple of days and go and focus and do you know, your best work. And is the implication that the office as a permanent nine to five is definitely over? I mean, that's the premise of the nowhere office is that it's not no office. It's not advocating an anti-office stance, but it's recognising that people are working differently. Is that the deal? Yeah, totally. I think we're sort of, in a way, agnostic about where things end up. But I think what we do feel is that, and we see with our users, is that, you know, they want a variety of kind of locations to suit basically their different ways of working. So I think most people don't really want a one-size-fit-all anymore, and um, and hence why they come to us. You came out of government to start this, didn't you? So is that a sign of the times as well? Yeah, it's, want- tr- yeah, it's true. I've had a sort of like slightly, uh, slightly sort of trolley-like career where I started as a lawyer for five years, and I went into government. I was a special advisor in the Treasury. And now I'm basically, um, yeah, now I'm, uh, and then I decided to, you know, we had our first baby and I decided to sort of start a company. Alad, are you the kind of founder who began the business to suit them or because you spotted a gap in the market? Yeah, I think it was definitely something, uh, me solving a problem that I had myself. So obviously being a lawyer and, and, a, and a special advisor, those were jobs that were always on, to put it mildly. In government before you became a founder. Exactly, yeah. So, and I, I would always like travelling around the UK. We'd always loved exploring different places, me and my wife. And I also, you know, liked having my cake and eating it. So I spent a lot of time tethering off, you know, 4G, working off the side of beds and thought, you know, there might be something in this um, and sort of started it out. And suddenly other people felt the same way. And um, and now it's a, then brought on two you know, absolutely brilliant co-founders on board who are both uh, much better at me than a lot of things. So, um, and that's kind of where we've where we've ended up. Eleanor, what was the the gap or the need for 
the midlife women were looking for that you've identified and that you're trying to fill and trying to work towards? Well, after 25 years in the mainstream media, I was editorial director of the Sunday Times, chair of women in journalism, uh, I could just see that older women are not really seen by the male lens of the mainstream. And I had a whole series of articles which had actually performed very well in the Sunday Times magazine, which I edited, which were directed at Queen Ages, before I coined the term. And they performed very well, but getting that kind of content past several layers of senior male management was pretty tricky. Um, I think there's still a general view in mainstream media that women are there to, as my old picture editor used to call it, brighten up a page. Um, and that once they weren't so bright, uh, maybe they didn't deserve a place on the page anymore. And so I could see that there also is a huge uh, generation of pioneering women in midlife. We're the first uh, generation to have worked really all the way through, reaching quite powerful positions. So my community is very much a community of professional women aged 45 to 65, really, maybe older. There is no upper limit on being a queenager. Um, <laughs> and a lot of their concerns and the kinds of articles that we run on noon on everything from sex to changing career to starting a new chapter at this point, we're just not being covered in the mainstream. Exactly. You, you've had to do this for yourself because the business as usual was just not working for you. Well, I could just see there was a huge gap in the market. I mean, everyone mm. needs a niche. I'd been a very kind of generalised editor for a long time, but and I created a lot of very successful publishing franchises in my old job. And so I decided I was going to do this one for myself. And it's been fascinating changing that narrative around what the later stages of women's lives look like. I'm fascinated by the generational shift going on in that both of you seem to be capitalising in creating and innovating new kinds of models to both do work and switch off. That in itself is interesting. But to do so um, from a different generational perspective, we're queen ages, you and me. I like to say I'm only 59. Um, <laughs> Alid, you're definitely younger than only 59. Can you share with the group how old you actually are? Uh, I'm 30. Right, so you're a very you're you are a gen you're a millennial. You're I'm, a millennial. I'm like a sort of gen yeah, Z like plus. late late millennial. I think yeah yeah. I definitely don't understand. Um, my wife's brothers are like like three or four years younger than me, and I just don't understand them at all. So I definitely feel <laughs> like a I feel like a millennial in you know I, I think I want that badge. But you were catering in your mind for a new era of workers who are going to be dominated by your generation and younger who want to be on the move and don't want to be tethered in the same way that, yeah, Eleanor, you want to come in there? I don't think it's just a youth thing. Um, I set up my company uh, actually during the pandemic and we have never had an office. We're all nowhere officers. I can work anywhere. And actually, what we see for queen ages is that flexibility is 16 times more important than status. So they don't want the old corner office. They want the nowhere office. They want to be able to fit their work around all the other things that they've got going in their lives. But they want to gather together because, again, the nowhere office isn't about no gathering place. It's about taking out the pointless presenteeism of mm. it. And that's where Ashore comes in, isn't it? No, totally, yeah. And I think I just totally agree with the fact that this isn't kind of a single generation or something like that. It feels like a, a much broader kind of across the board, mm. um, board shift. I think a lot about, you know, we think a lot about, for example, like Hilton Hotels in the 1950s and the way you had 
a new kind of generation of like work coming there via, you know, white collar workers, the kind of Don Drapers of the world, right? And it feels like you just do get these moments where the way people want to relate to their work shifts. And it's not one where you have, yeah, the people in their 20s or their teenagers are doing it. It's kind of like something that we see across the board. And uh, Alit, how do your clients use these spaces? Do they tell you how they use them? Do you watch them or what what happens? Yeah, sure. It was a really interesting thing because I think I started it and I was quite agnostic about would people be using it to kind of, you know, go away and then maybe do a little bit of work. But what we found is people, you know, when they're going away, really are focusing on their most needle-moving work and they're incredibly productive and creative to the sort of extent we have to say sometimes, you know, why don't you, you know, like like take a break almost, like, you know, book a day <laughs> off basically because, um, you know, when you're away, isn't it, you know, often work doesn't feel like work. And I think um, I always think about, uh, you know, in Shoe Dog, the opening of Phil Knight's book, he talks about the reason why he started Nike was the idea to kind of make work play. And I think for lots of people, the uh, that that aim of kind of, you know, being able to kind of, relate differently to their work and the way it relates to them is um, is something very powerful that they kind of want to be able to unlock and they use our places to unlock it. Eleanor, the whole relationship between time off and time on is really coming to the fore, isn't it? And I mean, the desire to just not go into work if you have no freedom is playing large. There's over 600,000 people in the Queenager age demographic across both genders. What's going on there? Why are we craving so much space? I think it's partly for many of the women that I talk to, having done 20 or 30 years within corporates without much flexibility. Yeah, um, good point. And I think that three decades of that, every day that I go up and I swim in the pond at 12 o'clock or I have a meeting with someone where I walk across the heath, that is a joy, not being on somebody else's time, not being on somebody else's dollar, choosing when and where I'll work in the way that best works for me. And I see that across the community of women. And I think that there's something around hitting 50, which is where I am, where you suddenly go, actually, I just don't want to be beholden to anybody else's schedule. So I think that this is about a freedom, and I think it's a freedom massively enabled by technology. That's fine, but I'd like Stefan to come in on the but, which is the pushback one always gets when having these conversations, which is, well, it's all right for you, you office workers, you middle-class professional classes. And those of us that watch the data pretty closely can see this trend is moving really to the factory floor, but there are still many jobs that cannot be scheduled in anything like the way that you're describing. Stefan, what do you think is going on politically around this different type of working arrangement, what I would call the hybrid haves and the hybrid have-nots? Well, we know, don't we, that autonomy at work and having some say over when and how you work is terribly important and is valued. And it's one of the reasons why people leave Mm. situations that are just not working for them anymore and sacrifice. Interesting to hear that women in particular value the flexibility so much more. I wanted to ask you also, is there any hope for men? I mean, (laughs) why are men adapting so much more slowly, perhaps, to this emerging Mm. world? Well, there's a lot of really interesting research about this this cohort, my kind of queen-ager demographic, not just the women, but that the women are the ones who lead the way. 
uh, Saga have done a lot of research on this, that the women are the pathfinders. So it's often the women who are breaking through those new barriers. And I think particularly for women of mine and Julia's generation, because there aren't really any maps, there aren't any signposts for what our lives should look like at this point, we have the amazing opportunity to make it up for ourselves. And that's really what the Queen Agent moment is about. It's saying we can construct new stories. There are new ways that women can live their lives from this point. And I think, yes, there's a huge inequity here between people who have had a successful, um, what we like to call Q2, so between 25 and 50, those years of achievement. <laughs> Very if, corporate term, Q2. <laughs> please take note at the back. Excellent. Um, and Q3, which is what I'm interested in, which is 50 to 75, mm. which if you've had a good Q2, set yourself up well, then you've got wow. lots of options in Q3. And I think it's absolutely right, as we saw in the pandemic, that those who are working in Tesco's or working in a hospital have to be there. We suddenly found that the key, you know, those real key workers, teachers, the ones who actually needed to be in the room, were not necessarily the ones that we thought they were. And I think that there is a real kind of schism in our society between those who really have to be present in their workplaces and what you do about hybrid and flexible for them. And, you know, digital nomads like me and Alad who can really do it from anywhere. Yeah, and I just want to agree, like, I think maybe taking a step back and going back into my sort of special advisor mode, you know, I think the politics of it are... Who are you a special advisor for? And for our American and international <laughs> audience, what is a special advisor? We also call it SPAD. Yeah, um, so if anyone's seen the sort of thick of it, that's probably the best uh, the best example of what it's like. So essentially, it's a political appointee that goes into government and um, and works with ministers and civil services. I mean, ultimately, it's kind of being a glorified plumber, really. I'm going to say it's Greg from Succession in the early seasons, actually. Is <laughs> I that th fair? I think so, yeah. I think there's definitely... It's a bit and, grander I, I, than I've, Greg. And I think I have seen some Greg and Greg Tom... Greg became very powerful. I've definitely <laughs> seen some Greg and Tom star relationships. Yes. Uh, yeah, in, in more ways than one, yeah. Maybe less like uh, throwing of water bottles, but, you know, that maybe how it's behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, um, so I basically worked in the Treasury. I joined in basically um, early 2020, so just at the beginning of the pandemic and spent... 18 months there as part of the kind of, um, so mainly working on public spending, so to Steve Barclay, and then as part of what was called the the Joint Economic Unit at that time, and then I went to the Cabinet Office for three months. But um, as soon as again, I hear you speak about, you know, the reason why you decided to do what you're, you're doing, because it was for me, again, exactly that, you know, it's 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 a grueling job and your time's not your own. And I think mm -hmm. at some point, I definitely, one of the big attractions for me with starting ashore and doing my own thing was that, you know, you, you are in a position where your your time is your own a little bit more. I just want to also emphasise again that this movement away from fixed skyscrapers, as you like, and the commute um, has been less visible on the factory floor, but no less in practice. IKEA was developing very cutting-edge smartphone-assisted um, scheduling. I talked to Christy Hoffman, the head of um, one of the biggest trade unions uh, for professional workers in America, and she pointed out that actually the concept of a sort of two days back to the office and the rest of the time free to be nomadic is pointless for people that might prefer to work on long extended sprint shifts. So this argument about how we can work productively and have time for ourselves and therefore everybody benefits is much more widespread than the narrative, which is sort of polarising it and saying it's hybrid haves and have-nots. And I guess the question I want to ask all of us is, 
it's not going to change, is it? It's not going to go back to what it was before. And and why not? Alad, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting when you look at a lot of the the changes that occurred during the kind of, as a, result, as a result of the pandemic, you know, you see a lot of reversion to the mean, but you know, it feels like number one, this is sort of sticking about. And number two, it's always interesting, I think that, you know, it, the conversation just takes longer to catch up from where, like to where people are, you know, every, every couple of months you get some kind of, okay, this time I really mean it. Um, and it never kind of, um, it never happens, you know, and I think it's just for... Meaning as in return, return to office, to office yeah. policy. Yeah, you know, like the idea of, I remember in the early days kind of when I was sort of first noodling around the idea of a sure, you know, you'd have a conversation was like, this is cool, but like, you know, well, when this all dies down, we're going to be back to five days, you know, five days a week. And I think that, yeah, you know, the, the genie is out of the bottle. And, um, you know, no matter what happens with the labour market, the trends and so on and so forth, I think, yeah, that expectation is something that's very powerful. I think my daughter's like 18 months old, you know, and I do kind of think that she'll probably look at the kind of five-day-a-week, you know, every in the same setting for four, for however many weeks a year as something that was, you know, that's just like slightly strange. I'm certainly finding with my many children who are all millennials or Gen Zs with a little alpha grandson, Generation Alpha, is that they're either doing work that is effectively digital nomad. One of them works in television. The other one is a paleo archaeologist, right? He, you know, his his workplace is is the middle of the desert somewhere. He's got an ology. He's got an ology. <laughs> That's also so proud. British, uh, proud mother. British reference again, <laughs> international. It's a long, long, it's, it's a joke. Um, an ology, proud mother. Um, but but the other group, are, I mean, at least one of my kids works quite happily being a filmmaker by night and working in in flexible shift work in coffee shops and bars by day. So it's almost as if the professional life is being rejected. The career path is being rejected. And I wondered what you, any of you think about that. I think it's to do with The Hundred Year Life. I love that book, brilliant yeah. book, um, mm. The Hundred Year Life. And that says that in a life where we live for that long, the old model of get educated, work for the same place forever, retire, go to the golf course, die, you know, that just doesn't work anymore. And so that what we're seeing, particularly in the end of Q1, so up to 25 and then between 25 and 50, is that young people can take much longer to build networks, travel around the world, learn languages, kind of skill themselves up with the kind of networks and connections and richness which will then drive their career at the next point. And therefore, they may do that more corporate thing, but maybe they'll do it a bit later on. Well, uh, the chairman and chief executive officer of of Mercer, the large um, multi-billion um, HR business, I interviewed her for Bloomberg actually recently, and she said exactly the same to me, that oh. it's almost as if the urgency has gone. But I wonder whether that's partly because it's colliding with a sort of nihilism that, you know, well, I'm never going to get enough to have a good pension and the pandemic has made me seize the day. Alid, you're nodding. Do you know what I mean? That, hmm. yes, you know you're going to live for longer and so you can take your time, but also there's a little bit of negative, I don't believe this career that's being dangled as a carrot. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? I mean, just reflecting on, like, my own life, like, I always felt that there was kind of like a conveyor, right? So I kind of, hmm. you know, grew up in, like... Um, in like mid Wales, like first my family to go to university and you always felt like, okay, here's this step and then there's this step and then I go and do law. 
and then I go and become a lawyer and then I train to become a lawyer, and then you know and and I think that you know it, it it's very strong that urge kind of to sort of stay on that conveyor and I think um you know I've definitely found it like you know just fascinating seeing people particularly emerge and they're like over the course of their 20s which actually I think is a really lots of people talk about their teen like teens the formative period but actually if I think about my my friends and people I know the change that they've undergone from 20 to 30 is absolutely massive. Q1, I love that. Q1, so Q1 yeah. is your 20. When, yeah, no, give Q, us the cues, Eleanor. So yeah. Q1, um, 0 to 25. Right. So that's the kind of grow that's getting going. Babies. Babies. Well, into well, adult babies, real yeah, babies exactly, and educated. adult babies. Q2, 25 to 50, the age of achievement. Q3, becoming. And I think they call <laughs> Q4 harvesting. <laughs> Just, but, but I think that there's something interesting here about all those stages being kind of thrown up in the air. Mm. And I also hope that the work that I'm doing on Queen Ages is giving younger women and younger people a sense that mm. there is more runway. I find I've, I've been going and talking a lot to younger women and this idea that you're not, you don't have to pack it all into your 30s, mm. you know, having all your kids, getting, getting your career, sorting it all out, that there is time. I wrote a column recently called Slow Down Ladies there's time because if we can power up and we can be powerful queen ages in our 50 to kind of 75 and you're a brilliant example of that then we don't have to pack it all in mm. in q2 and i think that that extension or that rethinking of life stages is really crucial to this but the question is really are employers particularly large ones really sufficiently attuned to this and switched on to it are they imaginative enough to this are they going to have to abandon traditional graduate recruitment, not be offended if at the milk round at the graduate fair hardly anyone turns up because they're all off doing far more interesting things than putting on their first M&S suit or whatever it is. I think employers have got an enormous amount of work to do on themselves in terms of what's sometimes called the employee value proposition, but what they are as a place to be. I think that's totally right, Stefan. And one of the things that we're trying to, I'm trying to do with my Queen Ager hat on is actually go into co quite a lot of corporates and going to a big bank tomorrow to talk to them about exactly that, about rethinking their whole work structure in terms of those much longer careers. And I think that's really important in terms of senior women and the retention of senior women and also just all of us thinking about when we're going to come in and out. And actually, I think those big employers with their milk round structure and if you haven't made it by the time you're 35, you're a loser, you know, all that kind of stuff is really, really detrimental to reimagining our whole different kind of work structure. And I think that the kind of thing that you're talking about, assure and working in this different kind of a way, that also really helps us. I think it's um, striking that you've just had a baby. And when I look at my queen ages, a lot of them, if you're 50 now, you can have children who are two or who are 22 or 32. And so, and often you've got elderly parents who are also coming to bits. So the kind of need for flexibility is massive, I think, in terms of what kind of a career you need at what point in your life. Yeah, you know, I think that, I mean, just, just I totally agree with that. And I think like, it was definitely something for me. And I think maybe as a, as a, as a, as a father as well, like, you know, the, the desire to have that flexibility and spend that time with, with like, with like our first baby was a big part for me about making that move. And it's, you know, it's interesting when you, when you look at kind of generations before me and like having to go to the office, you know, like 40, you know, like can keep on doing that, you know, the amount of time that I've been able to spend with my daughter while still build, building a business. I'd imagine that's like, if you were to look at like 
of the last 150 years, like post-industrial revolution, that I've been like in a very rare environment. If you were to kind of plot that on a graph, I'd be right on this end of the spectrum. And I don't think if, if you know, if, if Margaret was born like five years ago, it would have been very, very different. Um, I love that economist, if you could plot it on a graph. You, you, they can't take the treasury out of you completely, Alan. Exactly, yeah. But, but I'm very struck by what we're really all talking about is is values rather than purpose. You know, purpose with a capital P has been the the, the sort of slightly box-ticking way of corporates appreciating that people's values are changing. They want to live and they want to work. And they don't, therefore, place value on a place of work in the same way that they did. And I did some work in a very, very large skyscraper um, to do some interviews and everybody was coming in and out from different countries and different time zones. It, it, it's becoming nonsensical to have a fixed place, isn't it? And Alid, I mean, in 10 years' time, is the Assure model kind of going to be better and more lasting than we work <laughs> because it's not giving you a fantasy, it's reflecting reality? Yeah, you know, I think that's our bet. Our bet is kind of that, you know, I think when you start a company, you need to have kind of a thesis about what the world's going to look like in 10 years' time. And I think for us, it's like, you know, you have these, these you know, like multiple places of work. You have the kind of like maybe what what is the office? It becomes a much more kind of like a place for people to gather together, right? And for kind of, you know, and for kind of broader cross-company interaction. You have, you know, more specialised home offices. You know, one thing that I'm always struck by is how every month is new technology coming out. You know, the, the technology keeps on improving. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were kind of using found tools. You know, it was slightly shonky monitors. It was, you know, ironing boards. It was whatever we could find, right? And you see companies really leaning into that. And I think the technology is just going to get better and better. And then you have, you know, the, sure, these locations that are you know, specialised for work, that are away from the city, in create like creative peaceful spaces that are for the most for the you know for the most important thinking i'd like to just come back to the we work point because i'd like all your views and stefan perhaps we can start with you you know we work is sort of on its last legs now allegedly reportedly but we work was really um laid the marker for what i call the co-working years in my book that began in mm. sort of 2007 and ran up until the pandemic and i think it's because the corporate sector effectively ate we works lunch and they invested in making their spaces like we work so on the one hand they've kind of killed we work but it that, that it's still not enough to save themselves, is it? Because people don't want to be in an office all the time. They want a lovely office when they're in it. Isn't that where Ashore comes in? It's about being away. Yeah, totally. I think being in like a, yeah, exactly. You know, the idea of being in like a just a different location, the idea of of a dislocation of a moment of uh, of change, right? And what that unlocks within people. I mean, it's interesting to just talk and reflect about we work more broadly, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's odd, really, like, in, often startups do really well in, in terms of, like, reshaping the market. And I think that mm. what they did do is reshape the market. But then there's a second question, which is whether you have the business model to be able to, mm. like, reap the rewards, right? It's mm. fascinating to me how a lot of those companies that came out of the last 10 years have, have really changed the way that, as you say, corporates, you know, think about their space. But then actually, you know, you know, often, you know, I think we often write off you know, the incumbents too much often. And actually, they can often, you know, strike back in ways that are pretty effective. And I think, you know, if you're someone like Adam Newman, you feel like you've 
you probably made your dent on the universe, but that's very different from building a great company, right? I kind of can't stop thinking about the Jared Leto version of him either. He's made work for others, hasn't he, Stefan? Jared Leto playing him in the... Yes. Whatever it it was, the Netflix. But it was classic overreach, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, and Granny... I mean, he believed his own bullshit, frankly, didn't he? And... uh, (laughs) Like a lot of entrepreneurs. (laughs) (laughs) But he's created a space for fast followers. I think it was when someone, was it his wife, or was either related to Gwyneth Paltrow or began to consult her on Mm. something... That's usually the beginning of the end. It kind of, yeah. <laughs> That's it, always a bit of a Jump the shark. I think also, in a way, we work and stuff, we're, we're following on from the tech giants. I mean, anyone who's been into a Google office or a Facebook office, it was very kind of, you know, groovy spaces and a lot of corporates very much trying to make it a kind of frat boy hangout so that all the... The, the neeks would kind of want to stay there forever and never go home. Um, a th- neek? What's a neek? Oh, classic Gen Z. I mean, I've also got two 20, you know, 20-year-old children. She's a so neek. smug saying that, like I she confirm. knows a neek. I, 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 don't I, don't, I don't know what a neek is. Go on, a neek. So, I mean, I'm definitely a millennial. You're a millennial, no. So neeks are um, it's, it's kind of swats, we would have said. A neek is a kind of, you know, like a, a geeky swat. Kind of type. Stefan's looking fabulously interested. In new, one, new one on me. Anik. Anyway, so Neeks, who you know, might say so Google, say so Google designers would definitely be Neeks. I mean, I just would slightly defend those tech giants. I'm sure they didn't in any shape or form want a frat boy culture, but I think what they did want no, is they a play culture. Ping pong tables, mm. all that stuff, bean bags. I think that is right, that there is a seriousness now to the way we look at our lives and our work. And I think that the the slides running around the middle of a room and, you know, I, somebody I do know went to a tech company in California not so long ago and he said to me, these executives in suits did come down from the top of the building on a slide and I thought, it's so over. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's totally over. And also they were the least playful companies ever. I mean, they had the trappings Mm. of play, but anyone who knows anyone who worked there, it was not playful. But what I mean is that those kind of quite groovy looking environments, which then we were copied, I think now all corporates have kind of taken a bit of that on board. They've all got the kind of chocolate bars like Google did and slightly kind of funky kind of swing chairs and that kind of thing. I think that that aesthetic has become very mainstream. But I still think, to Alid's point, that the corporates do prevail, not just because they're large, but because they do like to adapt. I mean, Stefan is our really resident corporate analyst. <laughs> what What is your sense of... The corporates, you know, they've gone with the mm. with the with with the turbulence, haven't they? Mm. Their offices are under threat, and their workforces are rebelling, and da da da. But mm. where where are the corporates? Where will they be ten years from now? Do you think? Ten years is hard to say. That the immediate challenge is a sort of bumpy downturning economy and traditional questions about headcount and being the right size. And I think that is the first crisis for them to get through. And if they if they can't get people to return to office, they're going to be some quite tough decisions about business. So we might see some very old-fashioned management choices in the next six to 12 months. And then they'll react to that as the pendulum always swings back and something a bit more humane might, might come through after that. But I, I think the next year is going to be quite difficult. 
Well, one more point from you, Eleanor, and then we'll wrap with our now traditional in this series look at not what you do when you work, but what you do when you don't work. But Eleanor, final point on this subject of discussion. I don't even know what the subject of discussion is today, apart from work at its broadest. It's very free. I love it, yeah. It's very, what's it, spitballing, they say in succession, to go back to Greg and Tom. We're spitballing. (laughs) Well, to go back to Greg and Tom and that whole kind of media landscape, I think that there is something very dinosaur-like and very appealing to a certain kind of um, command and control male manager about having everybody where they can see them. So I won't name any names in terms of the media company I'm talking about, but I I have it on very good authority. There are quite a few editors who want everybody there, that there's no point in having worked for all those years for your (laughs) corner office and your secretary outside if you can't walk around and command the troops. And of course, everyone knows on Zoom everyone's the same. There's no bigger tile for the boss Mm. on Zoom. So I do think it's something Mm. about status and particularly that kind of old corporate male kind of status where everyone can see you and people who work quite hard in those organisations to get to the top of the hierarchy don't want to lose it. But male because they had the power because, of course, when women came into positions of power, they kept the same culture. It's only now that we're beginning to see a slightly different female-led culture, isn't it? I don't think necessarily... You think women are basically better than men, Eleanor. No, Come on. no, I don't think they're better than men, but I think that they want different things. So I was given a very big corporate job when I was quite young and I was given a corporate office and I'm um, told to sit two floors away from my team next to the big editor. And I said, but I don't want to sit down here. I want to sit with my team upstairs because then I can see what they're all doing. And they were like, no, but this is a very special bit of corporate real estate, you know, next to the editor. And I was just like, I don't want those kind of status. I don't want the car waiting to take me for lunch. I, do, I don't need any of that I would just want to do a good job and my idea of that is different from the men who came in before me so I'm not saying that they're better but I think that women want different things I wanted to work more intensely with my team and get out of there so I could go home and put my kids to bed I faff. didn't want to faff about you know grandly swanning out to lunch yeah I mean just to agree on something on that I mean it's something <laughs> that I thought about a lot which is um so when I was in the Treasury, right, I mean, generally civil service is quite like a hierarchical organisation, right? And, you know, for example, like when you have a meeting, you know, you'll have like the prime minister or whatever, or the minister sitting on the table. And then you have like concentric circles, you know, people kind of going out. And it was fascinating, that shift from Zoom and watching it in real time, I mean, with using Teams, right, um, in the Treasury, how, yeah, the fact that you could have just somebody who is quite junior, just pop up basically, who would normally know the most, right? Because, you know, they would be the person who is closest to the truth. They're the person that's spending all the time on it. And it was it was fascinating when we did, like, negotiations with departments and stuff. Um, yeah, you know, how you it wasn't just basically often, like, kind of a minister-to-minister discussion, actually. Often, if there was, oh, we're scrambling for this figure or this information, then you could have someone just pop up, you know, who is, who is you know, who, who knew the most. The they meek. Might, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just pop up and just, you know, and and actually I think how, how much, you know, I imagine it probably improved decision making quite a bit. Fascinating. Well, we said that we would end on what you do when you're not working because we want you to bring your whole self, your best whole self to the nowhere <laughs> office. So, Alad, I think you're probably doing quite a lot of childcare when you're not working. But what do you do when you're not working? Uh, yeah, it's mainly I do um, mainly childcare basically. So I sort of uh, spend a lot of time at the moment. So, uh, what she, is Ma- what are Margaret's leisure activities? Uh, well, she's got a very packed social calendar. You know, it's much more than us. You know, she's got like best friends and stuff. It's always weird when you're in the park 
and you can tell that she notices a child, but you have no idea who the kind of parents are. And you're like, okay, this is a bit awkward. Um, but yeah, mainly at the moment, actually, you know, um, going maybe one last succession call out. Uh, she does a lot of running around, right? So I feel a bit like Stuart, you know, the kind of bodyguard following Logan Roy around in his walks <laughs> in Central Park as she kind of imperiously strolls towards the next the next pigeon. What David Mamet memorably called the guy behind the guy. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely the, the power yeah. behind the throne. I am the guy behind the toddler, yeah. Eleanor, we know you write about it a lot, that you go hiking and you swim in ponds. And I know you're writing fervently a book at the moment. So do you have much leisure time? I have to say, I've spent the whole of this summer kind of chained to my laptop because I've got to write 100,000 words by the end of September. <laughs> so I've really been under the cosh. But when that stops, I will be... I have swum every day, actually. It's what's kept me sane. But then I'm going to do a week's completely silent retreat, meditation and yoga in on a river in France where I can go and swim. Beautiful. Yeah. And what do I do? I've just dropped my last daughter at university yesterday. Huh. Uh, so I've got a very empty nest, very quiet house. It feels quite kind of um, luxurious. <laughs> Stefan, I don't think I've ever asked you what do you do for leisure because you and I work together and we have such fun with it's like play. No slides, <laughs> but play. What do you do? Probably eat too much. <laughs> Foodie. I enjoy. I enjoy that. You're a foodie. Mm. Uh, well, my work-life balance is probably not as good as as, as I preach um, at the moment because there's a lot of work going on. But I, too, have a little person, a grandson, and um, getting ready and clearing up from the tornado of a two-year-old is, is, well, it's playful, but it's also hard work. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've had... I think a very good discussion, Stefan. What's your what's your takeaway other than the fact that you now know the word neat? <laughs> neek, neek. See, I can't even say that. And neat, neat is, is, is non-unemployment <laughs> educational training. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, uh, we're not I'm, talking about I'm those. I'm pretty sure I saw that in a spreadsheet somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I used to write about them a lot in my policy days. <laughs> Give us your takeaway, Stefan. I think it, this is it's all emerging and it's shifting, which is a safe mm. thing to say. But I think it's true, and I think the advantage will go to those who just can can adapt and emerge a bit quicker and show some imagination and some generosity and some trust in people. If you've hired them and you think they're good, then you've got to trust them to deliver and let them find the way of delivering for you. And my takeaway is the intergenerational point. Mm. And, and you know, the fact is we do have different generations around this table articulating multi-generational uh, stakeholder concerns, but also very generationally specific life stage concerns. And that is what interests me. I would like to say, and I'm now looking at the camera because we are whiz-bang full TV in this series, you've been watching and listening to The Nowhere Office with me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. And I'd really like to thank our wonderful guests, uh, Alad McLean-Jones of Assure, who is, which is also uh, partners of this show, uh, this series, and Eleanor Mills of the great Eleanor Mills of Noon. I'd also like to thank uh, off camera uh, Tom, who is our uh, audio and video engineer, and Kevin, who will be editing this all. Uh, you can follow us on X. I still want to call it Twitter, <laughs> but that's Same. because I'm an old school boss. Uh, I want uh, you can follow us at uh, Nowhere Office and on LinkedIn and YouTube at the Nowhere Office. This is a fully connected production. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you to all of you.
all of you today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Me. Cheerio. Bye now.